0: You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, we sit down with Guillaume Mobet, who's the CEO and co-founder of Lemless. He's on a mission to help 1 million entrepreneurs to build profitable businesses by 2025. In the 3.5 years since starting Lemless, he went from zero to 10 million in ARR with 20,000 plus customers worldwide without any funding. He loves SaaS businesses, B2B growth strategies, and great people. On today's show, we talk about when selling a business, how long does it take, and what are possible surprises along the process? How should a founder go about building a personal brand? What are the five stages of a business? What are four things to avoid at all costs? And how should a founder go about negotiating a term sheet? This and much more on this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast. Now, for our listeners, Just to let you know, there is some profanity used in this episode, some words here and there that while some of it's deleted, others are kept, but no matter what, the information is there. All right, now let's start this week's episode of the Silicon Valley Podcast, enjoy. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Guillaume, I'm super excited for this week's episode of the Silicon Valley podcast. So first off, thank you for taking the time to be on our show. And well, before we dive into the questions, G, can you just give our audience a little bit of the history
1: of your career up until this point? Yeah, thanks a lot for having me, Sean. I'm really excited. So back to, I guess, 2017, when was I launched my first business with my dad, which was a t-shirt business. It was one of the first big step into the entrepreneurship world. I was convinced that it was going to be a hit. But after we launched, I think we sold like uh, 60 shirts, so like massive failure. And uh, and eventually after that, I got in different type of business where I started understanding the biggest pain point of any business owner, which was how the hell do you find customer and clients? So I started working in, in lead generation, created an agency, generated like millions of dollars across the world for clients. And after that, I started in 2018 to to launch a software called the LemList. And after a few years, the company grew to where it is today. So we crossed 20 million in annual recurring revenue without any fundings in under five years. I just love how your first company was a T-shirt company. (laughs) Every time I take an Uber
0: or Lyft, it seems the driver's working on a t-shirt company. (laughs) It's either that or an app, one of those two. I'm amazed also that you went from that to, I mean, what were the lessons you learned from kind of led into that first successful company? But actually, even before that, I think you failed to mention to our audience, you took a year to travel. What was that like in that year? I mean, so many people, at least for myself, I lived overseas for about eight years total. Mm -hmm. I learned more traveling than anything else in my life. I mean, by far. So what was your experience and what brought
1: you to, to travel? And do you have a story you can share and everything? Yeah, definitely. So um, I actually, my, my grandparents grew up on a farm, like my parents grew up on a farm. So it's very like middle class. So my parents never studied. So for them, it was like really important that my brother and I get like a really good education. So we essentially studied science with my brother and I ended up having a master in chemical engineer. And because I never had the chance to travel during my entire study, I did pretty much like any job a student can do from babysitting to being sales guy to doing yeah work construction, bartender, like pretty much everything. And once I graduated and my parents were like, okay, we're proud of you for <laughs> like achieving this this degree and getting this degree. I was like, okay, I really want to travel. I never had the chance to travel. So... I don't have enough money to actually travel for a year, so I'm going to be creative. And instead of spending money on accommodation, I would use social media to stay at locals for free and try as much as possible not to spend any money like during this, this travel. So it was like really intense. We did with my best friend, we left and we did 18 countries in a year travel through Asia, Pacific with Australia and New Zealand and then South America until Mexico. So it was very intense. I think the one of the story like we, we talked about for the show is how we, I scam a scammer in China because I know you lived there for quite some time. So all of that happened, actually. And, and I think it was a good life lesson. At least it helped me build the confidence. So I've always been someone who's very obsessed with things. So whenever I have an idea, it's not going to go away until I actually do something about it. And, and in China, we were working with my friend. It was like, I think, our, one of our first week traveling together. And we're in Shanghai. And then they are like this group of cute Chinese students. They come to us and they're like, hey, can you take a photo of us? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And then they start chatting. And then they're like, yeah, we're, we have this Kung Fu tea show that we want to go to. And my friend is like a, a really like a, a fan of martial arts. So he's, hell yeah, I want to see Kung Fu. I want to see tea. So we get there. We look at the price. It's pretty cheap, I would say, like maybe five bucks for tea or something like that. But then they come and they keep serving. And at the end, They came up with a bill that was like maybe 150 bucks or something. So for us, it was like way too much. And we're like, we're not going to pay that for tea. So we start negotiating and we end up paying 100 bucks, but we've lost a lot of money. Our budget daily was maybe like $10. So it's like, we basically... 10 days we can't do like these things it's not possible but then we know we we start walking and my friend had actually like the a guide where it says what you can do in the city and this type of things and then there is on the guide something written be careful with the scam and then the guy described word for word exactly what happened to us and i was like seriously like how can we be so stupid so at night i was really pissed and i couldn't sleep because i was looping on this event thinking like. What could have done differently, etc. After some time, I'm like, okay, I went online, did a lot of research, and I realized that some people managed to get a bit of their money back by finding a cop, going back to the place, and then putting pressure on them. And you lived in China, so like, what's really important for Chinese people is like not to lose face and also having like kind of the their country is extremely important. So when I went there, like I got like a cup. We found the place because it was very hidden. And then I was like, I don't care about money. What I care about is the image China has like around the world. We're French. Is it super normal for Chinese people to try to scam? And then the police guy was like super angry at the other guy. And this is the image you're giving to China. uh, So it got very intense. And eventually the guy asked us like, uh, how much? How much did he pay? Did he ask you like uh, for the tea? And then I say five hundred dollar. (laughs) And then the guy was like, do you have a receipt? And I was like, why would I get a receipt? Like I had the receipt in my pocket, which was like a hundred. But I said like, why would I get a receipt? Like it's a scam. Like they will obviously not give us a receipt. And then the guy opened, like the mafia guy opened a drawer and he had like money, like really bricks of monies all over the place. And then he gave us the equivalent of, let's say like 250 bucks. So we took it with my friend and essentially made like 150 bucks out of these stories, which was, I think, pretty cool. I met so many people I was in
0: China that got scammed like that, but you're the <laughs> first person I've ever met to literally scam the scammer. So another a first for this show. So, so she, I love that story. And when you were traveling, you and your friend, you'd mentioned being able to stay at all these locations for free. Was that couch surfing or was it, were you just really good at sales? I mean, was this kind of the foundation of your almost sales career or like how did you go about doing that?
1: So it was a bit of a mix. Like couch surfing was obviously like extremely helpful because it's an easy website. And then very quickly, we started to build like a Facebook page and an Instagram page. And every time we were meeting with some people around the world, we were saying like, okay, we're going across the world. So if you live in a certain city, maybe you have friends, maybe you know people and people were invited other to their pages. So we would get in touch easily with people. And then from all the social network we were using, we started to be able to to stay at people's house for free. And it was like really good fun overall. That's just genius and the power of networking. I
0: mean, one thing on this show that a lot of people talk about is just how important a network is for the success of your business, for success in anything in life, and just proved it right there, continually growing this network and being able to use it to, to travel around the world. But let's go back to that first company, the t shirt company. I mean, it sounds, I don't want to say it failed because. I mean, as long as you took lessons away from it, it was a success. So what were the lessons you took away from it?
1: I think it was... I mean, there are like hundreds of lessons, but I think there are some steps that are extremely practical. You should always ship super fast. You don't have to create a company before you actually start making money. Like all of these things that I didn't know about and I was like, I did things by the book I felt I couldn't sell something I didn't have, which actually you can do it. And it's a good way to understand whether or not there is a demand. So lots of things. I also like the business was with my dad because my dad, he he can do like screen printing. So um, I put a lot of pressure on him. Like our relationship also suffers. So one of the biggest lesson, like after, I guess I got this maybe a year and a half after failing this business is there's nothing more important than the relationship you have with your close one and business shouldn't be something that come in the middle of it. And for me, I think it's only when, when I realized that this mistake or like all the mistakes I did were actually lessons and learnings that I was able to come back to my dad because for almost a year and a half, we stopped talking because every time we were discussing, it was very intense because for him, it was like the, um, the opportunity to build a company with his son. And for me, every time I was looking at him, I was reminded of the failure that I was during that time. So it was like really tough and only when with Lemlist I started to get a bit more money etc cetera, etc cetera, it became like a lot easier to to have like proper disconnect and also get closer again. I guess on that because I'm There are so many companies
0: that two founders start something and then they just can't, they can't work together and they go separate ways. How did you go about, I guess, building that relationship back with your father and also in the future, would you ever partner with anyone to start another company or would it always be just
1: you yourself moving forward? No, I think I love like being partnering with people. I think this is when you have a lot of emulation. This is when you can actually brainstorm ideas. But uh, but yeah, I think for my father, what was also tough is like the emotional connection. Also, your father is is an important figure for you when you grow up, especially as an adult. So for me, it was, I think I put a lot of extra pressure. And at the same time, I always had in mind the fact that I was a student at the time. So I was doing my master in marketing. I always took the easy path of saying, yeah, it was just a test for the courses, et cetera, et cetera. Well, actually inside, I wanted to build like a really huge company. But then after that, my expectation lowered a lot. Okay. So then you had the company with your dad. Did you... Just close it down, sell it. What was the end of it? Yeah, so we had to shut it down. And actually it cost money to shut down a company. So it was like really annoying. And we so we spent money. We sold all the t shirts we had to a really good that we were actually lucky on this one. We sold all the high quality t shirts to a four star hotel in Paris because the quality was really good and they liked it, which kind of allowed us to break even and not lose a dollar. And after that, a friend of mine who I was like doing my master in marketing asked me if I wanted to join him to build like a lead generation agency. I did not know a single thing about to be or lead generation. And I learned everything like on the way by just like closing people and telling them like, hey, we're gonna help you find customers. They were like, okay, sounds good. And then I was like, Shit, how exactly are we gonna find them customers? Now that we receive money, let's figure it out. And uh, and that's how we grew like the agency. Wait, so tell us this agency that you just <laughs> created on the fly.
0: When you were talking to these clients of yours, were you like, how are you able to basically make these promises you had no idea if you could fulfill and then actually
1: fulfill them. I think at first, the biggest discovery for me at the time is my friend knew how to figure out how to find people's email addresses. And for me, that was crazy. Like he showed me all the tools, et cetera. And I was like, that's crazy. Like you have LinkedIn, you can now find email addresses. Yeah, and we can reach out to them, automate follow-up, et cetera. And when I learned about this, I was like, this is insane. So I would start myself prospecting like this and then whenever i had people on the phone or on the um, on google meet or whatever i would just explain they're like how exactly are you going to find customers and i'm like you see like the meeting we're having right now i've used the exact same technique that i would use for you guys and then they would be like like convinced like I, i'm i was i would tell them i'm not going to close the customer for you that's your role i'm not like your closer i'm not a sales rep for you guys but i will bring qualified meetings in your inbox every single week Okay, so one, that sounds, I mean, that obviously was a lead into
0: what you're currently doing. But even then, it sounds like the company was very successful. What happened to it?
1: So the thing is, in, in full transparency, there is there are a lot of up and downs in an agency. First things first is when you get like bigger clients... You need to hire more people so you can actually scale the operation. But if the clients don't want to pay like straight away, you have a lot of cash flow challenges with agency. Because if you scale too quickly, then you don't have the cash to hire. Then you can't deliver like the right quality of service. So we had a lot of issues at first, and then very quickly I started realizing that every single software I was using to do like sales prospecting was not good enough or could be better. Even though there were like thousands of software, I felt like I could do a better job because I felt like personally was lacking, even though for me, it's the essence of any good sales prospecting. And very quickly, the agency was making a decent amount of money it was not like crazy amount of money, but it was decent. But then I was like, okay, is this really what I want to do? Start scaling with a lot of people, managing operation, don't have recurring revenue, etc. And I felt I wanted to go in software. And so I decided to basically sell my shares and let my other co-founders like run the agency. And actually look like in, in the end, I didn't even want the money. So I sell my I sold my share, I think for $1,500 or something like that. So it was like extremely cheap. But because it was my friend and I had learned a lot, I was like, just yeah, keep the money, run the company and, and have fun with it because you enjoy it more than I do. And I want to do something else. Well, that, that's fantastic that you're able to come to a
0: kind of a friendly agreement there. And But before jumping off to the next company you started, a lot of startups here in the Valley and all over the world, they get approached by lead gen agencies all the time, to, especially very early on because they don't have a sales team. How should they go about screening them, vetting them, should they even hire a lead gen agency? I mean, what are your thoughts for those C to A round, those early stage companies that need to start bringing in revenue to show investors, but
1: really it's just a tiny team? I believe that the most founders are looking for excuses. And, and I was like the same when I started. And I've seen it so many times like people when they, they haven't found their product market fit. And then they're like, yeah, we're just going to hire a gross hacking agency or a sales agency, etc. I don't think it's worth it when you first got started because what you need to do as a founder is to spend time understanding your market. And to the best understand your market, you need to do sales prospecting because you need to understand what's going to hook your potential customer and also who is your ideal customer profile. So very often with our agency, when we are closing like very small companies, it was always a pain because they didn't know where their ideal customer profile. So the results were not so great. And then it creates a lot of frustration from both ends. So the first to answer your question, I would say if you're pre-product market fit, haven't signed any customer or just a few, don't hire any likely generation agencies. I don't think it's worth it. I think it's your job and stop trying to find excuses and do the work, and uh, otherwise, if you're a bit like uh, more advanced, like the way to vet lead generation agency, I feel it's I feel it's always great to talk to existing customers if they have see whether or not they are part of some like partnership program etc. with some platforms, and uh, and then because typically like right now we have like our own vetted lead generation agency. And in reality, we know we can vet them because we have access to the results that they are getting. So it's easy for us like, to, to promote. So what I would suggest if you want to work with a lead agency is to find the vendor of your choice, like the software that does sales automation and ask whether or not they can recommend people. That's usually like the safest option. And then after this company,
0: that's when you started Lempod. And Lempod, it seemed you reached... I mean, you grew to 40K MR in a short amount of time. Can you talk about that journey? Why that was so successful versus your other two? What lessons there? Just give us some information. And I got a couple of questions about, honestly, why (laughs) sell that? But first, let's tell
1: our audience. I actually started Lemlist and Lempod came after that. So which will help answering like the other questions. So Lempod is just for Lemlist. We started it in a red ocean. So essentially sales automation software very crowded market. And a year after that, we, as you mentioned, we started like Lampod and Lampod was uh, based on one of my needs. Every time I posted like on LinkedIn, I wanted to share it with potential friends. So I had like more engagement on my post and asked them like to comment or, and very quickly I was like, I'm bothering everyone. (laughs) It's Time wasted. They click on a link. They go to LinkedIn. They click on and this should be automated. So I created like a Chrome extension and very quickly, like the use case was put yourself and your team or put yourself with like friends or people in your network and automatically you will help each other out, get like more views, more reach. And I feel it's a great way to leverage your community, but very quickly the success of this product was actually what made me really dislike it, which was it became like the biggest marketplace in the world of pods and of people who essentially just wanted to buy likes, even though they were creating content. So they would essentially create a lot of pods of groups saying marketers in the US companies of 11 to 50. And then they would create like tons of post names like this. So people would join whenever they would fit these categories. But actually the guys in it would never be like a part of these categories. They would just be like people there trying to get as much as possible. And very quickly, the more money we were making, the less the content on LinkedIn would be of quality because we were really like with the algorithm. So I ended up in a position where we had Lempod on one side generating a lot of revenue and Lemlist was also growing like exponentially to 1 million in ARR. So I was like, we have two products, but we have a very tiny team. I've never sold a SaaS company. I don't like Lempod at the moment because I think it needs more investment on moderation, having someone who handle this. And I don't want to do it nor hire someone to do this. I feel like I've met someone at a conference. His name was Thomas Mal from FE International, which is like a a broker. And he was basically like, okay, I can be helping you find like a buyer. So I'm like, whatever, let's try that. And eventually we sold it within two months and uh, and then I got my LinkedIn profile ban. That's another story. Well, you left us on a cliffhanger right there. (laughs) So I'm curious how you got your LinkedIn ban. You can share
0: if you want. And if not, going back to the company itself, I'm curious, I mean, You got marketing and an engineer background. I didn't hear programming. When you come up with an idea, there's a lot of, I mean, a lot of teams, you have the programmer and the salesperson, or just the programmer or as the person without the software background, how do you go about describing a new idea, a new product to the people that make it? And how do you know that they're doing a good job? I mean, so many people here will outsource an app or something overseas and come back with spaghetti code that's junk, that can't scale. But it sounds like every time you've had
1: software built, it's been built right. Yeah, exactly. So I had the chance like a really good co-founders at the beginning. They were great builders and it was great because... The people who are co-founder, whenever they create the code, they have to maintain it. So usually they don't do like crappy code and they try to do things that that can scale at least to an extent. And for me, I would say that on the product, because I'm really passionate about the software, I always had really clear ideas of what I wanted. And then it's just a work of wireframing, making sure that everything is very smooth so people can understand easily. So as long as you can design all the wireframes, then for developers, it's like much easier for them to, to put it in place. Okay. So all about communication. Is that (laughs) fair to say? (laughs) Yeah.
0: And then you'd mentioned you met a broker to sell your company. So just our audience knows, and I always give the plug at the end when I'm not doing the podcast, I'm an investment banker focused on mergers, acquisitions. I should capital. have reached out to you, actually. <laughs> thank you, thank you Yeah. For, the, for this next one, for this yeah, next yeah. one. The, the bigger big, one. Big exit. <laughs> for our audience, could you tell them, well, one, a lot of people don't understand how long it takes to sell a company. A lot of people think they can just sell it in a weekend. What was your experience with the process? I mean, how long did it take? Were there any surprises that happened in the process? Process, anything you could share?
1: Oh, it was like a roller coaster. So, so you have to imagine that we started to list our business for sale in March. And that was March 2020. And the 15th of March, then there is like COVID, everything stops and you're like, It's like, what's going to happen? You don't know if your business is going to survive. Everyone is like, silence. And then after a few months, you realize that SaaS is coming back to life. But at that time, because markets were crashing, a lot of like investors or buyers think that there is a lot of money to make with stocks. So then you have less buyers, more people going to stock markets, etc. So it was a bit challenging. And then we start receiving like a few offers. Then you meet with the potential buyers, etc. And then at some point, we we receive a seven-figure offer, which was really great great for us. So we were really happy with it. And we're like, yeah, like it was, I remember it. the offer had not come yet, but the broker told us like, yeah, we're negotiating with them. It's going to be a seven figure offer. And then on the Thursday night, I received like a, a message from LinkedIn saying, you have to stop Lampods right now. It's breaking our thermal services, etc., etc. And then on the Friday morning, the broker came in and said, Hey, good news. Here's the offer. They're super excited. And then I called them and I was like, Guys, like there is something new. (laughs) Like we just received. So it's like the 24 hour window. And then like this buyer was like, yeah, like the risk is too big. So we're going to take out of our offer. And I was like, like, this is really crappy. And then with the broker, we started to think, okay, who could actually acquire a business like this and under what terms? And this is when I actually learned a lot about how do you structure a deal? So the risk is actually very spread out. So essentially like the deal we had, We took another two months to negotiate it. So in total, it was maybe like four months. And we negotiate a deal where we had cash upfront and then we would take an earnout over two years to spread the risk and get essentially like a really big percentage of the overall revenue. And the good thing with it is like, if the revenue grows bigger, we're making more money and they are making more money. And if it stays the same or if the company shut down, they don't have to pay like an extra cash and it's limiting the risk for everyone. And then like the due diligence for such product was pretty quick. I think it was maybe like two or three calls with the dev team checking parts of the code just to understand and see what was working. And then after that, you have the passation of assets and everything, which can take another week or so. But overall, it was pretty quick. And for us, what was nice is that we did not have to stay on the business after. So we could actually focus on our main project, Lemlist, which we really wanted to grow. I'm curious how, well, one,
0: how you negotiated not to have to stay on after. I mean, maybe this is too much and it's all classified because <laughs> normally with an earnout, people want to stay on after just to make sure that they have a little bit of control on that. And for our audience out there, if you want to listen or learn a little bit more about this, check out our past episode with Mark Wilser, founder of Global Capital Markets. In that episode, I think it was episode 80 or so, we talk about structuring deal terms process. We go pretty deep into it, talking about earnouts, seller notes, rollover, the whole gamut. But I mean, if you're okay with sharing, weren't you nervous not staying on? with an
1: earnout component to it. Yes, I was to be honest, but at the same time in in full transparency for me this was more of a learning play in a sense where Lemlist was skyrocketing, I was making money out of it and the other option was okay like if LinkedIn keep coming at us, we will shut down this business. So it's like What do we have to lose? And at the same time, for me, it's also a great opportunity for marketing to say we grew a software to that end and we actually sold it. It shows great track record. Like it's just in terms of branding, it was like pretty cool and also a great way to learn. So I was like, you know what? Not I'm not super stressed if that doesn't bring me like the multi-million dollar that I was expecting, because in the end. I would have learned. And at the same time, I have another company I'm really excited about that I'm still growing. So it feels good overall. To talk about, you mentioned selling that company, the experience.
0: And well, I'm curious about selling a company and the brand and personal brand. Because one thing, and I think people that look you up online, you have this amazing online presence. So how did you go about building your personal brand. Also, how important do you think it is for the founder of a company to be out there in the public's eye versus just in the background where no one knows or hears that person?
1: In my opinion, if you want to grow a company, it's all about sales. Everything is about sales. Whether you're hiring people or you're acquiring customers, this is sales. And my definition of sales is that sales is a transfer of belief across a ladder of trust. So whenever you build a product or you have a service, essentially what you have is a solution to a problem people are willing to pay for. So you are convinced that you can help someone with a problem to solve it. But for that person to actually buy your service or product, they need to trust you. And this happens in even our day-to-day life. Like you walk on the street, you're hungry. Your problem is that you don't want to starve. And if you look at a restaurant, the reason why you will get in a restaurant to purchase food is because you trust them not to serve you food that's going to kill you. And for me, when I deconstructed the essence of trust, I figured out that it was coming from three parts, the targeting, which is essentially if I open up like a a bakery in San Francisco and I'm targeting like gluten intolerant people, it's not going to work out. Like they would probably die from my good baguette. Then you have the messaging, which is how exactly do you communicate your message across the audience? And finally, like the last part of the ladder, is the credibility. And credibility is extremely important. If you walk like, down the street and then you see me having a dinner with Beyoncé and you don't know who am I, you're gonna say, this guy must be like, the real deal. And this is the power of credibility. Like, you associate things with, with like, important people and that's why brand is so important. And for me, I was like, okay, like, we, we work in, a, in an environment where it's getting easier and easier for people worldwide to build software. However, do you actually know who's behind a software? Do you actually know why they're doing it? Do you actually know their mission? And the answer is most of the time, no. And because I didn't have like money of all the big brands who had raised like hundreds of millions of dollars, et cetera. I was like the differentiator and the only thing that's different. It's me. Why I'm doing it and why I want to build the best product out there. So I started documenting everything from day one. And the more I grew my audience, the more I was sharing like my mission, the more I was sharing like the ups and downs, the struggles, the experiments I was running, the easier it was to build like this credibility and trust because people knew that everything I was doing on the product was to make them more successful. And that was my mission and that is still my mission today. And I feel like whenever you create that relationship with your audience and that trust, then it's really like game changer and your ladder is becoming like really solid. And that's when you skyrocket. Okay. So with that, with the trust, with the exposure,
0: with the audience, is there any negatives that come about from all this exposure?
1: Yeah, of course you have to picture thing that I'm French, you can hear it from my accent. And in France, for example, like people, they really love like to mock accents. So every time I would produce like content in English, like people would comment like, what the fuck do you think you are with your shitty accent? Nah. And some people would get really mad or even sometimes when no one knew me before and I would post really in-depth content about the experiment that I did. You would have people coming in the comments and being like super harsh and being mean overall. So it's people who are saying that it doesn't have an impact on you. I think they're lying. It always have an impact, but as you grow, You start caring less and less about this. But in reality, for me, at first, it was like quite tough. And eventually, what I started doing is I think like haters are usually like the best consultants because like they showcase things about you without any filter that you could eventually improve. So if you outwork everything your haters are telling about you, They will just shut up and they will have nothing to do. So whenever people are saying like, Hey, your French accent is shit. We can't understand anything. Then, you know, I'll know that I have to work on my accent. I have to work on my pronunciation. I will have to work on my vocabulary. And eventually what it will do is that it will make me like a a better person, like a a better version of who I am. So every time I started having haters, in the end, I was actually like thanking them. Hey, thanks. I mean, your life must be tough because you have a lot of hate in you, but thank you for the feedback. I'll try to improve and be super positive. Usually like that pisses them off. That makes me happy. And then I know what I need to work on. Is there anything right now that the haters seem to be hating on you? I think I, I still see a lot of people hating on my French accents, even though I try to practice. When I'm a bit tired, I know that I, I go back to my old habits of really pushing the French accents. But overall, no, I think people like over time, like, they realize that I'm a pretty chill guy. I'm here to help. Like I answer like most of my messages. I try to be helpful. I try to serve as much as possible. This is what drives me in my life. So yeah. Going back to your company, LEMless. So you sold LemPod. Now
0: you're 100% focused on LEMless. How did you go about scaling that? And was there any strategies that changed? And I think it's really interesting that you're scaling a sales company.
1: So, yeah. so tell us about that. <laughs> So I think what I loved about our product is that we were actually customers of our own product. I love the expression like eating your own dog food. And for us, if you look at the growth loop that we created, was pretty simple. Like I would start campaigns with Lemlist, which allow me to book meetings with potential prospects. Every single campaign that I would do, I would document why it's working and I would write content around it. Then the deal I would close by doing sales prospecting, they would become customers. I would share with them like the content I write because I would show them like, okay, here's how you do actually proper like sales prospecting. Then they would give feedback on the product on whatever could be improved, I would also for the best performer using our product showcase them in the community, saying, "Hey guys, like here is a lemnister of the week." So the person essentially doing the best campaign this week is that person. Here's what they did. Here's why it's working. So people would be pride, be proud. Sorry to be part of this community and and really be proud to be a lemnister of the week. Then I would improve the product, and based on the product improvement, I would go back to running campaigns, close deals with the meetings I would book, and then. create create content, then share it in the community, and so on and so forth. And by doing so, you actually create like a really scalable machine because at the same time, you're doing sales prospecting. So you're using your products. You see what you can improve. You are like very aware of what customers want because you're always chatting with them in the community. And eventually, you always get insights on how to improve. And this is pretty unique, I would say. And we were lucky to have built a product for ourselves that can help us also understand the pain of our user. Why don't you think more companies do this kind of sales review, improve cycle? I think it's a really good question. I think like most people would tell you like not to build a product for yourself. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are giving an advice to say, don't build things for yourself. It's going to be too unique. It's going to be too niche, etc. I think it's bullshit. Personally, I think you should build something for yourself. We have 7 billion humans being on the planet. I can guarantee that you're not unique and that other people will have like similar problem and, and that if it's working for you, it will be working for them. I just feel like the way we structure company today is people want to complexify things a lot while actually business is very simple. For a business to work, you need to do either saving time to people or helping them make more money. For me, that's as simple as that. In B2B, it's it's either time or money. So for people like to really build business, they try to complexify things. They try to think about SEO, think about marketing, etc, etc. Instead of just focusing on one thing, how the hell do I make my user more successful? And for me, the day you focus on that, then everything changes. And the reason why most people don't do it, it's because it's painful. Because talking to customers is painful. Talking to customers is basically getting slapped on the face pretty much every single time you're with a customer. So marketers love to be in their corner. They enjoy writing, they enjoy the creation, they enjoy like searching and creating things. But talking to customers is not always like practical. It takes time. It's not on their schedule. Everything that is hard people will always try to skip it. And I feel for us because we didn't have money and we didn't have the choice. We made the hard choices in the early days, which led to like an easier life or at least like better habits. While people with a lot more resources will choose the easy path, which will lead later to a harder life. Now you'd mentioned the easy path and the hard path. And well, you self-funded
0: the whole time up until just recent when you got outside capital. I mean, here in Silicon Valley, people are already talking to investors before they (laughs) even have an idea. Yeah. Why not at the beginning, why not reach out to outside investors?
1: To be honest, Sean, I'm not going to pretend that I was a fan of bootstrapping, etc. I only had a thousand bucks to create the company. And in full transparency, I did reach out to like tons of investors, but they all told me to fuck off. (laughs) The answer was all the same. are you? What have you done? You had an agency. You never built a software before. Who are you again? I don't know you. Like It's a crowded market. Your competitors have raised hundreds of million. Why are you different? Who are you? Et cetera, et cetera. So I kept receiving rejection. I'm not going to pretend, hey, I had this big vision when I started. I had no vision at all. I just wanted to get like a salary where I could pay the rent because yeah, my ex-girlfriend was paying the rent. It was a bitch at the time. So I was like, I just tried to get a bit of money out of it. Well, you can't say you aren't honest, though. But I won't lie because the reality is like for years, I was like feeling bad about myself for not having like a big vision. I would all these entrepreneurs, like these visionaries, etc. And then whenever people would talk to me, I would feel bad about myself for not having massive ambition, etc. But in reality, like if you come up from a middle class background... For me already, like having a salary where I could pay a rent was something good, was something I would be happy with. I didn't grow up with fancy car travels, jets or whatever. So, but I feel like step-by-step ambition grow. And I think it's like something that comes like appetite, like you need first to eat and then you get even more hungry. And for me, it was the same with my ambition. It, it grew as the company grew. And eventually when I became like a multimillionaire, when we sold like a, a percentage of, of Lempire. So we, do, we did not take actually primary capital. It was like fully secondary. So each of my co-founder and I took $10 million. And then like at that time, I was okay, like right now, I'm sure based on what I built, that I can build a billion dollar company. And here's what I want to do for the next years. But before that, I didn't have really like a lot of ambition. Speaking of taking outside capital, and it was really interesting how you just mentioned
0: secondary for the founders. I'm not sure if people caught that, but how did you go about negotiating the amount? From my understanding, you were offered a pretty good amount and then
1: later were able to negotiate for quite a bit more. Do you share that? Yeah. So, so what happened actually is where, because I've been documenting everything of the journey, I started receiving more and more emails from VCs from all around the globe. And eventually I wanted to teach people how to raise funds, even though I had never done it. So I was like, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to raise funds in public. But in the end, what I believed was if I get an offer and only if I get an offer... I would say no to that offer and try to get media coverage just to showcase that Bootstrap company can also be in hyper growth and have like really cool and sexy numbers. So I started doing this and then I received an offer. I think it was like $20 at at $100 million valuation. And then after that, another VC came back with another term sheet saying that they wanted to give me like $30 million. And this time it was $15 million for the company and $15 million in secondary. And at the time, I did not know what the fuck was secondary. So I was like, "What is that?" And then they're like, "Well, the money will go directly to you." I'm like, "How is this possible?" I didn't know investors could do that. Like, I didn't know there were people who were okay to acquire a part of your company without you like even raising funds. So because we were having like this whole raising public, and our first idea was to say no, we said no to that amount, and then we just waited for a few months, and eventually the guy that I had offered us. 15 and 15 million. We told them, you know what, like the company is healthy. We don't actually need cash in. So we don't need to raise funds, increase the capital with outside capital. However, as founders, we're happy to de-risk and take money like in our bank account. So can we do 30 million at a $150 million valuation? And they were fine with it. So we we just went for it. How was that saying no to that first offer? I cried. (laughs) No, seriously, for me, it was like, it was so fucked up because it's, This thing where you know that you don't want to raise funds because I I figured out that we were really profitable. We did not know exactly how to spend the money we were, we were having. At the time, like, no one was talking about profitability. Everyone was saying, you have to burn more, like, growth is all that matters. And I was like, yeah, I've got growth, but I don't want to hire like, hundreds of people. I would not know how to manage nor how to give them like, more work or stuff to do. I want to stay lean. I want to stay fast. We were doing like good EBITDA, etc. But when the secondary came in and we say, we had to say no, I was like, fuck, like, maybe I just said no to... Five million dollars and, and I could have done way more. It's not the smartest move. I was really stressed, but I talked to one of an investor because obviously I said no to funds, but usually I'm really like uh, I get on well a lot with tons of funds in the US and in Europe. And I called a few VCs who I get on well with and I asked them, if I said no, do you think it's dead forever or do you think and they were like, No, like your company is sexy, like people will come back and you will get like better terms and I say, Okay, I trust you and that's what happened like a few months later. Staying on the finance question, just wondering because I would think with your company's
0: growth, I mean, you had a ton of revenue. I would think that people would be approaching you to either one, do revenue financing yeah. off the future sales, or two, just go, hey, we'll give you. Do you want to do a dividend recap? And for listeners, that's basically taking on debt at a multiple of EBITDA, but you're profitable. Why not do that? Why sell equity? Why sell part of the company? I'm just curious. Just curious.
1: Yeah, yeah. it's. I guess it's like whenever you're selling equity, you also have like new partners. And if the company like go under, I guess there is like less liability on you as a person when there is debt and you get refinancing. Sometimes they ask you that the money you can take personally would become a liability if something happened, etc. So for me, it was more in that term that I want someone who understand the risk and want to go all in with me on this adventure. And that for me, it's really like this kind of net for, you know, I don't, I didn't even spend the money, like the $10 million. It's, it's invested, it's running, it's like creating more money, but I don't touch it. Like I'm a pretty like simple guy, so I don't have a fancy taste or needs or anything. Okay. And during this whole process, you also wrote a book
0: so yeah. <laughs> for our audience out there. I mean, gee, if you want to promote the book, go for it. But there's one thing in that book that I saw that it talked about the five stages of a business and what is the minimum someone should. Oh, and what is the minimum someone should know about each of these stages?
1: It's a good question. Like for me, writing the book was something I did in about two weeks. So I went to Portugal. Actually, I rented a place in Lisbon and then like I shut down everything. I was just eating delivery every single day and getting food and just writing. And yeah, I just feel when you're growing a business, obviously there, there are several phases. I think the first phase and which is the one that. I think most founders try to skip, but is is getting slapped in the face a lot. And trying to find the first problem that you want to solve, then obviously, like you want to validate the idea, and for that you need to ship fast and make sure that people can actually and are willing to pay your business. To that stage, my advice, especially if you're like a first-time founder is to do everything yourself. The more you do yourself, the more you're going to understand the width of the business. And I think as a CEO, especially, you need to be the one like doing the work because if you lead by example, everything will become easier afterwards. Then after that, there is a part where you have your first hire. And I think this can take you like with a, a small team to 1 million in ARR. Then after that, I feel like there is a pass from one to 10, which is for me the biggest pass. And then the one we're at the moment, which is like from 10 to 100. And potentially after that, there are like other phases, but I'm not quite there yet to write the book on that. Well, we'll have to get you back on the show for the sequel then. (laughs) Absolutely. I'd love that. And just two more questions before
0: wrapping up. One, also in the book, it talked about four things to avoid at all costs. And then... Finally, I'm really curious, what should we look for, expect from you and your
1: company in the next few years? And that's a good question. So for the things to avoid, I, I don't remember exactly what I put on the book to be honest, but I'll just go with with tips that I think are important. I think hiring too soon is not a good thing. I think also making your first employees or giving honorific job titles to your employees too early is also like a mistake because some people are really good individual contributors, but managers are like a different breed. And it's not because I think it's super important to have a culture where people understand that they can be as valuable if they're individual contributors as if they were managers. I think like it's also a mistake that I see too often is people would take too much time from idea to execution. So you should have a bias toward action. Write that LinkedIn post. Write that Twitter thread, write that article, reach out to that person, send that cold email, pick up that phone, do that demo. All these things like instead of thinking, should I do it? Just do it because you're going to learn. You need to learn. And I think also something I would advise is be a yes man for the first two or three years and then become a no man. First, take every single meeting, say yes, because you need to understand the width of the industry you're in, the product, etc. And then have to focus on your time and on the important decision. And when it comes to Empire, we have really like exciting projects. So we passed 20 million in AR in the first quarter of 2023 this year. So we're we're quite exciting, excited about what's coming next because we've been working on a lot of AI-driven projects for the last year, and we're finally like putting M in production. So tons of really cool things that are happening, and I think we're at a breakthrough stage with AI, and it's just insane what we're going to be capable of achieving in the years to come. And I'm so happy to be part of of this era, to be honest. Gee, that's fantastic. For our audience, if they want to find out more information about
0: you, your company, what's the best way to go about doing that?
1: So they can check Lempire.com and then we list usually all our products on the website. And if they have any questions, if you have any questions, just reach out to me like Guillaume at Lempire.com. I answer to all my emails. And if you don't know how to spell Guillaume, just search for William in French and they will give you the translation in Google. Great advice. And for our
0: audience out there, when I'm not the host of the Silicon Valley podcast, I'm a mid-market investment banker focused on mergers, acquisition, growth capital. If you have any questions about the process or want to learn more, please contact me. Best way is either on my LinkedIn or if you want to find out more about the podcast and what we're up to, go to the Silicon com. And with that, Guillaume, William, G, I want to thank you for taking the time to be on this week's episode of
1: the Silicon Valley podcast. Thanks a lot, Sean. It was amazing.
0: Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at thesiliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.